Our exit poll is suggesting that there will be a conservative majority when all the votes are counted after this election of December 2019. The Conservatives on 368 seats and Labour way down on 191. Now, on those figures, we are looking at a Conservative majority of 86 if the votes actually tally up with this prediction. And that will be the biggest Conservative majority since Margaret Thatcher's third victory back in 1987. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host at Jasper underscore CH on Twitter and joining me this week we have got uh, Eugenie at MemesTD on Twitter uh, Lines at that interlace on Twitter and Turin at Turin Wilson on Twitter Firstly, welcome back Eugenie to the podcast. You've been been a while away but we're back for Christmas. Excellent. Um, and Just full l- of festive cheer. <laughs> <laughs> And listeners, in case you cannot detect from our um, our tones of voice, uh, the mood is one of despair as Labour have resoundingly lost the general election. But you all knew that anyway, and we don't need to dwell on that much longer. What we will do do want to dwell on is what happens now, what happens next, what rebuilding needs to happen, how we can go into the next general election in a stronger position. And I don't, I don't, I don't just mean we as in the Labour Party. I mean we as in everyone who consider, considers themselves a progressive. The Lib Dems had a very bad night as well. There's still only one Green MP, etc., etc. Um, so basically, what now, Eugenie? What do you reckon? What do we need to be doing in the immediate future? <sighs> Deep sigh. Um... <laughs> <laughs> As you can tell, I am feeling great about all this. Please detect deep sarcasm, people who are rude at me on Twitter. Um, it's hard to even say because all, all I can kind of really summon up is just like irritation at like other people's suggestions rather than my own suggestions, which is a very sure. peak member of the commentariat. Uh, well, well I mean, that can be a place to start. What What is irritating you about other people's suggestions? I swear to God, if Lisa Nandy runs a leadership campaign about listening to the legitimate <laughs> concerns of people in small towns, I will, like, I don't even know what I would do, but I will be <laughs> so, I'm already bored. I d- it wasn't mean to be, like, a specific pop at Lisa Nandy, it's just, like, it was more just, like, the idea of, like, oh, we have to go through a listening process. It's, like, oh, I, I know post-election like catastrophic defeat actually kind of sitting there and being like okay what is the problem here and how do we solve it is a part of that but just like the whole rhetoric of like like listening it just it's too it's too much kind of it's a bit twee at this point after a loss like this i'm willing to hear from basically everybody in the party with the exception of blue labor like unashamedly at all times fuck blue labor don't want to hear from you don't want to hear your warmed up fash sneering at gay people trans people uh you know coded stuff about david lammy or about anybody basically who's from who's black or from another ethnicity in the labor party don't have any time for it the tory party is your party now like just fuck off to it uh Anyone else in the Labour Party? More like I think we basically everybody has something to offer to help us win next time. I, I think there are other parts of the uh, Labour Party who I'm less interested in hearing from. And I think you actually make a really good point there that like, for, for if you are a Blue Labour supporter, like legitimately, I think the Conservative Party is now your party. Um, uh, go for them. Have fun with the 
yeah, like they've, they've got the increase in a little bit of an increase in the state. Like they're pretty much there. Um, but my issue kind of with Lisa Nandy is that um, it's just very kind of like, oh, we need to listen to the towns. Right. OK. What does that involve then, Lisa? Oh, we just really need to listen. We really need to get there's no real solution kind of coming from her other than, you know, just kind of listening. I mean, she didn't vote for the deal any time it was actually up. Um well, at this point, what what counts as kind of listening to the towns and, and cities? Like, now, some of this is going to kind of be a little bit solved by us exiting the EU, but I just kind of want to... I want some specifics on what we need to do, Lisa, before I take you seriously. Um, but, yeah, also, I don't know if there's going to be the space for both Lisa and Andy and Yvette Cooper to run with basically essentially the same... essentially the same agenda, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. And... Besides that, would you say that you're broadly optimistic in spite of this defeat? I'm broadly quite optimistic about the future, as and indeed may possibly be the only person. Yeah, I think the next five years are going to be pretty fucking shit, because the Tory party is now really ugly. Um, you know, the, the social liberals have gone, uh, the Justine Greenings, the Ruth Davidsons, who might have stood down if the Tory party ever tried to do stuff that was actively ugly, you know, stuff like... Um, cutting the international aid budget, starting a culture war about prep, or starting a cult well, just going full-on culture war, really, even more culture war than they're going now, like going proper full-on 90s single mothers kind of culture war. Well, we had all those old articles kind of come out before uh, from, from Boris Johnson. Did they make a damn bit of difference? No. I think if in two, three years' time the Tory party is really unpopular because Boris has made a load of promises that he can't keep about making Brexit go away, I think that's really going to come back to haunt them as well. Um, if in two, three years' time uh, they're looking for something to get their polls back up, they can go ugly culturally quite quickly. And so that's one reason why the next five years are going to be possibly pretty fucking horrible. But I'm optimistic because I think this Tory party, you have never seen a landslide like this built as much on lies, in particular a lie that really connected to make Brexit, to make politics go away. I think that was what really connected with undecided voters just as much as anything else, and it's not going to happen. Uh, he is pretty hated, actually, in the country. People don't have much time for him, you know. It, it says something's gone gone on when a minus 20 approval rating politician gets a landslide like this, and I think the public is really going to come back and make them pay for that at some point if they feel comfortable enough with the instrument that is at hand for them to do anything to make them pay with. So I think that's our job and that's our mission. I think 2024 is eminently winnable. Uh, with that light, those the, those are my muffins. Those are my muffins. I've got a yeah. Other other great thing like do loads of self care and baking. Like that's another great thing that gets gets you through the next uh, well through the last week and through the next few five years. <laughs> <laughs> so so on the optimism point, I think um, yeah, I one hundred percent agree with what Tyrion said that this was a campaign built on lies, and that is not a durable place. That is not not a, a durable start for an electoral coalition. Um, I do actually think. Um, and this may be a slightly unpopular thing to say, but I do actually think had Labour won this election, then um, it probably would have been inevitable that much of the policies promised would not have been completed in a first term. A lot of it was second term stuff, I think, and that would have come back to bite them as well. Um, so I think that was always going to be a problem, whichever party won this election campaign. But I think there are three specific problems with the new electoral coalition which the conservatives have formed um almost overnight well not overnight over the past couple of years but um has produced this overnight results i think the first problem is that 
as we've seen from post-election polling from Delta Poll and Opinion, uh, just under half of voters' concerns um, regarding why they didn't vote Labour. Um, and I think Delta Poll did um, polling with people who voted Labour in 2017 but didn't vote for Labour in 2019 and found this as well. So just under half of that um, constituency didn't vote Labour because of the leadership, i.e. because of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell um, and the messaging being put out from, from the very top. That is changing imminently. Um, Corbyn and McDonnell have said they are standing down soon. There will be a new leader. So when just under half of people are saying that the reason is the leadership, the leadership is going, that is changeable. That is sort of promising um, going forward because we know that things are going to be different. The second factor was getting Brexit done, um, of course, um, and that the first stage of that is going to be done um, in quotation marks by the end of January, if not sooner. We are now leaving the EU. We just have to sign up to that. Um, and sorry i lost my train of thought so 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 the problem the problem with electing a government which is going to be in office for four to five years on effectively a single issue is that that's not a a, that's not a good place to have a solid mandate for that entire administration's existence because there was effectively nothing else in the manifesto the conservative manifesto the manifesto did not exist it promised to get brexit done said some horrible things about um traveler communities and like some noises about funding the nhs and that was basically it like it's it's vague enough for the conservatives to basically be doing whatever they want over the next couple of years and that is that is concerning for all of us who want to be able to hold the government accountable and it's concerning because we just have to sit back and think well what are the government going to do we don't know and they now have a majority to be able to do whatever but it also means that it's fundamentally unstable, um, their voter mandate. mandate. And the third factor is Boris himself. Um, and it really does seem that many of the voters in the Red Wall towns um, voted for the Conservatives because of Brexit and because of Boris Johnson himself. Um, it was a very presidential electoral campaign um, and Jeremy Corbyn just ultimately wasn't the man to individually measure up to Boris Johnson, despite, as Tyrion said, Boris Johnson being incredibly disliked um, throughout the country. Boris Johnson is not, not going to be Prime Minister and leader of the Conservative Party forever. Boris Johnson will grow old and die like the rest of us. Uh, but more importantly, and and more dealing with the more short and uh, medium term, Boris Johnson is not going to stay as popular, in quotation marks, um, as he is right now. Because any politician who was once extremely popular in their lives, including Jeremy Corbyn, will tell you that all political careers end in failure of some kind. Everyone stops being popular eventually for whatever reason. And as Tyrion said, the lies will come back to haunt them. That's just how that's just how politics works. And I don't think those rules are going to be rewritten in this in this um, in this context. Even in America, it is already working. The Democrats have taken back the house um trump is being impeached and that has majority support throughout um america the lies will come back to haunt the conservatives and boris johnson and boris johnson will do something or some things which ultimately make it unpopular with make him and, and the party unpopular with this new voter base and the other thing tangential to that is the role of these new tory mps themselves who are representing these labor constituencies who have never had a tory mp before the conservative party 
will do what it always has done. It will cut taxes, it will promote policies that benefit the wealthiest in society at the expense of the poorest. That is what every single Conservative government from time immemorial has done, because that is just what their philosophy is. And that is fundamentally incompatible with what these constituencies have voted for and were promised and won, which are effectively Labour policies that the Conservative Party have taken as a result of the Overton window being shifted. Those, now, those Tory MPs may listen to those their constituents and be like, well, actually, yeah, no, we do need to be funding the NHS and getting more bobbies on the beat and blah, 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 blah. Maybe that will happen. But also maybe there'll be a really fundamental conflict of interest between who they feel they are in terms of their conservative philosophy, what the Conservative Party wants with this big new mandate and what their constituents want. And it's entirely plausible that we're going to get to the next election and many of those constituents are going to think, well, actually, I don't much like what this government's done at all. In fact, they've just turned out to be like every other Conservative government. So I think you have many right things there, but also some wrong things. So I'm slightly more pessimistic. Uh, I should caveat that some of this is taken from, because I'm a member of the soft left, I, I listened to the New Statesman podcast and, and Stephen Bush was saying some of these same things, but I, I was thinking some of them anyway, I promise. Um, I genuinely think Labour probably can't win. They definitely can't win a majority in 2024, just because of Scotland. And... I'm honest, I, I don't think Labour will be in government after 2024. I hope that will be the case. I will certainly be working to make that the case. But, you know, people talk in terms of, you know, it takes time to reverse losses. Um, and this is, you know, people were saying things like this is a two-term majority, and that's kind of what it means. I guess I'm saying that because people need to be ready for what that would mean. It could be almost a decade. Well, it could be 10 years. It could be 10 years. It could be another two terms. But historically, uh, the historic record is not kind to parties going for effectively a, a fourth term. And it will be the, the Tory party will have been in government longer than they had in 1992 when John Major went. And that's obviously the result we all think of. And emotionally, I think this is our 1992, uh, to be honest. Um but the record really is not kind to governments that are asking, asking for another term in power after 15 years. Uh, John Major lost 40 seats when they'd been in government for 13 years. Uh, 40 seats when they'd been in government for 13 years. Um, and that would take away pretty much their majority. I think we can get them to lose more seats, uh, particularly with a transformation. Uh, you know, and that was with effectively the Labour Party asking much, uh, giving the same answer to the same question uh, because they'd kept uh, Neil Kinnock. We will be going into the next election with someone who does not have as much of the baggage that Jeremy Corbyn did this time. That will be gone. Uh, and I think we can be very optimistic that we've got a fantastic set of potential candidates that we can go in to that election with, I think it's very, very plausible that we can make big gains. We've got more seats than the Tories had in 2005, and they managed to turn things around and become easily the biggest party. Uh, and granted, that needed them to be doing a lot of work, but I think it's really, really possible. I think it's really possible for us to put in the work and form a fairly solid rainbow coalition next time, or 
even form kind of a, an easy kind of minority government or even a majority government. I think the other thing we can take away is that the electorate is very volatile these days. We have seen absolutely massive swings, you know, a 25% swing in Bassett Law away from us. Uh, but just look at the kinds of swings that we saw in Scotland in 2015. Uh, you know, huge swings. The electorate is willing to change its mind very quickly and in big numbers when it wants to. I think the public is becoming a lot more volatile. And I think we're more than capable of doing something and getting that back in 2024 because it's very, very hard to forget that the, pub that the public are going to fucking despise this government after five years. They've based the landslide on lies. They are going to have shown that Brexit is not something that is actually going to make people's lives all that be all that much better. It will be very obvious that a, an EU trade deal won't have been pulled off, and the only thing that could replace it is a US trade deal that puts the NHS and puts agriculture on the table. There are a lot of reasons why the government is going to be even more unpopular than Boris already is right now. So I think the next election is eminently winnable. Okay, and I hear that. I would be agreeing with you if the majority was like 20 or 30, but it's not. Um, there's some interesting stuff, actually. Obviously, we won't really know until the data crunching's done over the next year or somewhere. I don't know, they do all the surveys and things. Some evidence that actually what happened was that the Labour vote was down in a lot of places rather than necessarily straightforward switching. Well, I don't think it's like a rapid change thing, necessarily. Uh, I, I think this is part of the same losses and voters leaving that was happening even in under the Blair government. I th you know, the, these social forces have been around for a while and this is the current form that they're taking. So I, I don't necessarily buy that this is a rapid change, I just think it's a manifestation of it. I, I also don't, I mean, the, the, the Conservatives manifesto, they've written a bunch of checks they can't cash, right? Like, they, they, they just doesn't make any sense. This is, the, again, the opinion that Stephen Bush had, but, like, just, just their sums don't add up. They want to spend a bunch of money, but they've also said we're going to keep the budget balance and all these things, right? But Jasper, you were saying, oh, well, we know what Conservatives do. They cut tax and don't spend money. Well, I think what Conservatives want is power. The Conservative Party absolutely doing the same calculations that we're doing. And if they need to spend money in the right ways, in ways that will be regressive and unfair but will still be public spending, I think they will do. And literally they don't get two terms unless they consolidate this coalition. So why wouldn't they spend money on that? I think they will try to find a way to make it work. I remind you that the intellectual force behind this government is not going to be Boris Johnson, obviously, who is just going to do his, just do his thing, but it is going to be people like like Dominic Cummings or like the other people who have been thinking about this kind of thing for a while. And, you know, you were talking about MPs, the new MPs who've been elected and what their ideologies are, but actually I suspect they are not necessarily your typical Conservative MPs. Some of them are. Some of them are definitively Conservative in their outlook, presumably all of them. But, like, I think some of them will want to, will have got elected wanting to spend more money on the NHS. Genuinely. And so I think they might do that. And I don't think it will be good. I don't actually think it will be what the NHS needs. And I don't think it will be the stuff... It won't be in any way left. But it will feel. It could feel good to people for a short time. And I, I, I genuinely think that, that 
if the Conservative Party in its bones understands one thing, it is that power is what it likes and what it needs. So I think we can get them out. I hope that with the right choices and with a favourable wind and planning and thinking and hard work, we can do it in five years. I'm just saying that we have to be ready for what it will feel like if it takes us the, the if it, I guess what I'm saying on the line is that I am ready to give what remains of my youth to help out to get a Labour Party into power again, but it might take that. What remains of our youths? <laughs> oh, it's going to be a fun five years. <laughs> if, 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 yeah, so so five years, but if it's ten, I will be I will be nearing my forties. What remains of our middle ages? What remains of our middle ages? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm not an optimist. Uh, uh, instinctively, um, and I share the concerns about. I. I admire the. I admire the optimism of thinking maybe this is a 1992 moment, but it does feel like. Um, it feels like a Thatcher-esque moment, and I don't quite know, you know, how the chips are going to fall, in the end. Um, it's difficult to. It's difficult to predict, mainly because even in our own attempts to create historical analogy, we're not taking into account um, the seismic repercussions of Brexit and how that how that deal, if it comes, will 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 be voted on, and how that will split and change our our political system and the way people fall into their parties. I think we're looking at generational difference in party um support which is going to have increasingly quite big repercussions you know um the conservative party basically losing anyone under the age of 40 um and that kind of flank of middle-aged people who previously they relied on to you know be the kind of store to the property owning democracy just no longer existing um in the same numbers that they once were um so you know as a as a historian i always urge caution but uh, <laughs> um and I do, and also I think we'll look back on this period and think about the the most important event of the early 20th century was the 2008 economic crisis and just how that has changed everything in the way we even conceptualise politics and how parties work and who they're meant to represent and uh, this kind of reliance on, you know, an analysis of class which is based in the the kind of 1960s not the 2010s and as we move into the into the 20s um it's yeah i i i struggle to kind of fall down one way or another but i do i do share i wouldn't even say it was lines i wouldn't say you're a pessimist but i share your your sense of um uh unease about the where where this is going and how difficult it is to build off a train which it just feels like has been so completely derailed um and i keep sighing a lot mainly because that's just kind of how i feel at the moment i'm just like everything has filled me with this great sense of unhappiness but i don't really feel like at the moment i mean we're recording this on saturday like it's not like it's been 
uh, a huge amount of time for it all to settle in and sink in and start thinking about the future. I'm certainly already dreading the inevitable leadership competition and all the rest of it, but it just feels like the Labour Party at the moment, really, there aren't any candidates, there aren't people, I, I know we didn't want to get into this too much at the moment, so I won't dwell on this, but I'm not I'm not filled with optimism. <laughs> Um, but you know, sometimes that works out for the best, um, better to be a a pessimist, try your hard, well, try your hardest. And then when things go right, it feels great rather than, um, have your dreams brutally stamped on as mine, mine have. I mean, the first time I voted was 2015. I legally voted. Um, and yeah, it's all been downhill since then really. So (laughs) sorry to be such a downer. I don't think you are being a downer. And thank you for saying I'm not pessimistic. I don't think I am. You are all being so pessimistic. Yeah, thanks, Tyrion. Thanks, Tyrion. Um, you're going to keep us through. And we need that hope. But I think it is okay to feel right now. You know, I feel very compassionate towards... You know, I, I wouldn't say I was someone who believed heart and soul in Jeremy Corbyn. But there are lots of really good activists who got into the Labour Party through him, who are good people who I want to continue being involved in the Labour Party, who are going to be feeling what is essentially grief. Five weeks ago, a few a few days ago, to be fair, but, you know, five weeks ago, none of this was true. And really, in a, set, in a space of moments, when that exit poll came on the screen, a future died. Perhaps it was already dead. You could argue it's whatever. But for those people... And for all of us who wanted to see a Labour government get elected, that avenue of history stopped existing. And it's okay to grieve for it. We shouldn't be self-indulgent about it because actually it's the people who are, I mean, certainly for me, you know, I know I'll be all right under this Tory government. Certainly not as bad as people in real poverty will be. But, but so we shouldn't be self-indulgent, just feel sad for ourselves, we should feel sad for the country. But I think it is all right to feel those things. I think I, you know, I first voted in 2010. Um, in that election, I actually voted tactically for in Nick Clegg's constituency for Nick Clegg, um, and I'd lived all my life under a Labour government, and that was a shock. And in 2015, I really thought, thought that Ed Miliband had it, and I don't know. Obviously, he didn't, and. You know, 2017, actually, I didn't think we had it. And then we did. And that was a weird emotion. So in some sense, this one has felt like, oh, it's this again. But this feels normal. And bad. So bad. But I, I think it's, we have all the awful, awful promise of and gift of time right now. And actually, I think making fast decisions or saying... You know, I've been saying this is what I think, but that's sometimes it's because I'm thinking out loud. But it's actually okay not to know. It's okay to pick ourselves up and work out what we're going to do. And I think we will be a better party, a better political project when we come together and decide what that wants to be. And ultimately a better government uh, for the people who need Labour when we do so. I think the thing that flashed through my mind when the... Well, not immediately when the exit poll came up. The thing that immediately flashed through my mind when the exit poll came up was, fuck. (laughs) Um, uh, The thing that kind of started flashing through my mind throughout the night was thinking of what opportunities there may have been to make that future still exist, to stop the things 
that are going to now happen and uh, that we will be powerless to stop for the next five years that you know our only hope is the lords so i want to say something about directly um so this is going to sound massively corny and it's objectively massively corny but um i actually uh have a quote that i like from this which is actually from the chronicles of narnia uh, yeah, I said it was corny, uh, which is there's this bit where, I don't know, I, I, I can't bother with the details. Aslan's talking to Lucy for some reason. But this is the quote, right? One should never worry about what might have been. We can't change it, right? We can learn from it, but, but it will drive us into despair, I think, if we think too much about what we should have done. Because all we can do now is move forward, I think. Well, with that mind, one thing I think we should learn from is that my mind just kind of kept going back to when we stopped Boris Johnson from having the election that he wanted uh, in September, because I think one big driver of this, and I think, you know, a lot of people have kind of found real kind of counsel of despair, like on Twitter, a lot of people going, oh, wow, I can't believe the country really is this racist. I can't believe the country, you know, really did just kind of uh, cared so much about Brexit and just hated immigrants so much. I don't think that was the big driver of it. I think fundamentally this election was about Boris running on the one pledge get Brexit done. There was a reason they kept repeating that line, because it worked, because it tapped through to the one thing that the public wanted. They just wanted Brexit to go away. They thought they'd answered this question. Even the people who didn't vote leave thought it should be carried out, and they wanted it to go away and stop so we can move on to other things. Now, that's based on a lie, but I think that's the one thing that this was really based on. I don't think it was based on a real racism or a real kind of latent kind of hatred in society. You know, I do still fundamentally have some kind of belief that this country is, that that most of the people in this country are good, and that there is something good in them. And I think when we stopped him from having that election back in September, when the only thing he could have pointed to to get Brexit done was a very, very kind of never popular, uh, no deal kind of position. I think us being kind of a little too clever, clever about that and blocking that off, that would have been disastrous for him because that he couldn't have pledged to make politics go away and to stop Brexit at that point because he would have just been pledging to have it carry on forever and ever and ever. No deal wasn't an end state. And I think that's something that's going to really haunt the Labour Party in the long run a lot like you know, Jim Callahan's kind of waiting at the church moment back in 1978 kind of has done. And I think we should learn from that in the future, kind of thinking through the implications of what our opponents are going to have to campaign on, because it got even worse. Now, people didn't expect him to get a deal, but that him having a deal and having something that could just make Brexit go away, I think that was key. And I think that's going to be something that is really key. And also that we should bear in mind, because a lot of analysis is now going to focus on kind of, oh, you know, these are the sorts of people who wanted to, who wanted leave to happen. Actually, by the next time Brexit is going to happen, I think this is kind of a bit of a, a a little bit of a one-off state, that actually it's not going to be too relevant which way you voted on Brexit by the time of the next election. I think what they wanted now was just to get Brexit done, and that's not necessarily going to be how they view Brexit in 2024. I do completely agree with you, Tyrion, on the sequencing of events. There's something which I was actually thinking. Okay, so I've been thinking two things recently about counterfactuals, but I want to I want to try and avoid us going the down going down the counterfactual rabbit hole too much, as much as I do love it. I've been thinking, what could have happened if Corbyn had stood down? last year or earlier this year and done a kind of peaceful transition to a Corbynite and anointed successor um 
his leadership would have gone down as still one of the most successful. He would have 2017, he wouldn't have 2019, and then maybe we could have done ben better in this election. But of course, maybe this election would have been fought much differently if there were another leader, and we, and we wouldn't be able to say that. The other thing I've been thinking is maybe Labour will live to regret that that that, that specific sequencing, as you say, of, of, of depriving Johnson of the election back in September-October time, Perhaps Labour will also live to regret not voting through the withdrawal agreement in back in um, at the beginning of this year and not leaving on March 31st. And something which I keep thinking about is how many voters were ridiculing Labour's policies and not believing them and why what a change between now and 2017, because Corbyn was still there. The policies were basically the same. It was just much more detailed this time. And though the polling does show that the leadership was a specific factor, I think Brexit was a factor in another way. I think the failure to get Brexit done, um, the failure for the state to implement it on time, um, sort of made people lose their revolutionary fervor in, in the belief in change, which I think was still gripping 2017 just as it gripped 2016 with the actual vote to Brexit and I think maybe that wasn't people's conscious decision making but I think it was subconsciously niggling away at the back there um that well if they can't get Brexit done then how can they how are they going to give us free broadband and obviously it was the conservatives who couldn't get Brexit done but these people you know the electorate lump all voters in, or not all voters, or all politicians in together, and that's just the way things work. Um, but as I said, I want to go. I want to avoid going down the counterfactuals route too much. Um, and I think the point about what we can learn from this election campaign, and also just the past couple of years of politics, is really important. And what we what what we do need to be thinking about. So basically, what what do you guys think we can learn? What should we be learning? What should we be taking from this that went wrong and saying we need to do better this time or we need to be doing this instead of this? I think the one thing I saw this on Twitter today and it it kind of rang true for me. Um, so I don't want to claim this as my own personal idea, but I do think that the point was made that radical policies can be popular they just need to be supported by like a fundamental um an attempt at least to have maybe free drip 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 over the next however many years it will be until the next election that um you need to introduce the policies you need to you need to fully make the case for why you know a four-day working week uh is the most radical change to bring forward or why a, a a broad series of nationalization will like improve people's lives and you need to do that in a in a cohesive and coherent form and it's all about making positive arguments for these things and making sure that when you pull around to the next election that it's not a kind of wham 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 of like lots of new things um and things that potentially as you say like you, the kind of policies you have a backing for them um and people have a an, an understanding of them so you can kind of push past some of that some of those kind of rebuttals which are like oh you want to nationalize broadband ha 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 um so yeah that that would be what seems to me to be like a, a pretty crucial part in going forward and what this time is really a lot of this is going to be about and um as long as we don't engage in like too much navel gazing about um well you know getting to suck down the uh, blue labor rhetorical rabbit hole um hopefully that, that that's something that will be quite crucial 
um, that feels that feels pretty significant to me. I don't know how everyone else feels. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Uh, I think I'm, I'm trying not to be too negative here. There's clearly a bunch of, you know, like we all think there are things we could criticise, but we're trying not to do this podcast. Um, but I don't think the way policies were communicated to in the campaign, you know, people just, it was just too much. People didn't really believe people could achieve it. Um, but that it could be achieved. Um, the Tories are going to have a very radical few years. You know, they're, they're going to reshape the constitution of this country. They put any details about that in the manifesto. I mean, I'm not sure we should be taking that dishonest approach, but the point is, you don't need to have all the details. You need to sell people a consistent narrative and something that feels good um, and have the right kind of, and obviously, from my point of view, have the right actual good left-wing intellectual, like, coherent backing to that rather than just a sort of, you know, you can't have like a all Blairite smear focus group nonsense because for me that's just not what I believe in at all. Um, I think a lesson we should learn is, so we need to be careful not to get kind of high off our own fumes, like in the sense of, you know, I, I genuinely think that if we looked at this realistically and looked at the signs that were there, this, this, this defeat was not unpredictable. And indeed, there were people making parts of this point. Of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, And also, to a degree, you know, cr- criticism can itself shape a narrative. So it's not straightforward by any means. But I, I, I think... You know, I really found the optimism that we had during the election campaign was really great just to get me through. But, you know, we, we that like parts of the electoral strategy we had were, oh, well, the polls will recover like in 2017. And they, I mean, they kind of did a bit, but not entirely. And I just sort of feel, I mean, I didn't understand why 2017 happened. And so in some sense now and then it didn't. So, OK, um, we need to not have that happen like you need when the warning lights start coming on on the dashboard that needs to be taken seriously and if i'm entirely honest i don't think that's something the party has been able to do very effectively over the last few years and the Miliband years as they recall they did it all the time right they were warning out the dashboard instant reaction now spot and that didn't even go too well either right you can definitely go wrong directions on this you can't course correct all the time but you do have to be thinking all the time is what we're doing working is what we're doing oh is what we're doing what we're going to be doing is what we're doing reaching people are we communicating effectively in the ways that actually get through to people if you look at the success of the vote leave campaign take back control then the success of this campaign get brexit done there's clearly just a three word slogan there but there's this core idea of messaging what is what are the policy you know there was those polls that came out during the election that said voters weren't really aware which were labor policies they were aware of a few but they were absolutely aware of the core Tory policies and that they belonged to the Tories because those policies were very simple and very effectively. That 50,000 nurses, 40 hospitals, and it worked. Even though it was a lie, it worked, actually. Um, I'm not saying you should just ape that campaign, which they will do better, but, like, I, I do think, you know, some things work. 
Well, that was the thing. They did the vote leave thing again of tell a bit of a lie about your numbers and actually the fact that people argue about your numbers and whether it's going to be 42 or 6 or 30,000 or whatever, that, that argument has uh, was what got it in the news and we fell and we... Well, I don't know... <laughs> I don't know if you can really say we fell hook, line, and sinker for it. What else? What else could we really do? To kind of go back to kind of Jasper's point, um, uh, I really disagree. I, I think this was way more unfocused than than in twenty nineteen than we were in, than Labour was back in twenty seventeen. Um, uh, you know, I think Len McCloskey kind of has it right when he when he described all the promises that we that we had as incontinent. You know, it was really unfocused. You know, we had a manifesto which was promising stuff like four gigafactories. You know, we promised as many gigafactories as Tesla, the only company that has ever built a bloody big gigafactory, is planning worldwide right now in itself. They haven't even finished building their first gigafactory. Why the hell were we promising four gigafactories for a first uh, manifesto? What the fuck? Well, there was a lot of second term stuff in there, as you say, which was a bit optimistic yeah it's it's just like you know let's save ourselves something for a bit further down the line rather than making ourselves look less serious by promising all of this in one go you know if we'd had the whole 13 years of labor manifest of of labor policy in the first manifesto in 1997 i think everyone would have laughed us out of town um there wasn't really any sense of priority, you know, and even past the manifesto, you know, a couple of days after the manifesto, we did a bit of a dead cat strategy the morning after the Tory manifesto, promising £68 billion of spending for WASPI, for, um, the you know, refunding the women's state pension. We promised that out of nowhere. We didn't really have a proper explanation of how to cost that, which kind of undermined our, our argument that everything was costed. But also we were promising so much that just saying it was costed didn't make people believe it. You know, we promised so much that undecided voters didn't believe us anymore. But there was, and and when the, when you're at the point when you've promised so much that there is nothing you can say to win over an undecided voter, there's nothing more you can point to because they don't believe you're going to deliver it all. That's fatal. You know, 2017 was so much more focused, not just in policy, but in terms of announcements. You know, I, I heard from a friend of mine who worked in Labour HQ that we didn't even have a grid this time, you know, all the basics of messaging. Well, well the grid leaked or something. I don't know if you've seen and then they kind of they, abandoned yeah, it. Yeah, and it, because we weren't following it, it was just, it, it, the basics of messaging all seemed to go out the window. We had it done down so well in 2017, and in 2019, it was just all gone. Which is, I have to say, in large part because of things like path, culture, how, who is doing the politics, how they do politics, what they want to do. People running the campaign weren't very good at running the campaign. Yeah, it was like all of the things that made 2017 so good, it was almost as if we unlearned those lessons, and I have no idea why, you know. I, I think the only thing that was actually the only real success for us during the campaign in terms of messaging was the broadband policy, you know, that was leaked a little bit beforehand. Um, and actually, that, that went actually in retrospect in 2017, the manifesto leaking and being done kind of in a top secret way, you know, that actually worked really well this time with the top secret NHS papers that had been on Reddit for a month. You know, just having top secret on it makes people interested. And if we'd actually kind of repeated that this time, you know, if we'd re Beyonce'd our album, as it were, <laughs> I think that might have actually kind of worked a bit better for getting more attention because there wasn't really much response to our manifesto this time other than people noticing that it promised the world and everything well i think the issue of the and it's always going to sell the nhs line is it wasn't quite true like they are going to ruin the nhs but it's not like they're going to 
like clearly what the Tories are not going to do is just pass. Well, the- as we insistently said, it was about drugs prices, not necessarily selling the NHS. But we do always go about we do always go on about sell, sell off the NHS. And to be honest, the public kind of half suspects it. So I'm 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 agnostic on on the, on the worth of that kind of not necessarily being our official line, but being uh being a line that we don't necessarily go against. The point is that we say it every time. And we always say 24 I, I, hours to save the NHS. Right, right. It's, <laughs> I, I've at least seen some comment that literally just, it doesn't register anymore. But actually what they have done over this past decade, and before that too, let's be fair, when there were other governments in power, it, it, it's the NHS is not being sold off like it's being parceled on a bunch and given to Donald Trump for which he's going to pay an amount of money for it. So obviously he could deny that. Essentially what we need to learn is that um, the campaign wasn't fought... Was fought on diff was fought differently to how it was fought in twenty seventeen for some reason. Like like also we we need to not go into an election with a leader who is that unpopular with the public. I'm not going into a discussion about is that justified or not or anything like that. Objectively, we went into an election with the most popular politician I think almost ever in this country. And that was the major reason why we lost. And I think we have to do, you know, the Tories in 2001, in 2003, when they saw IDS wasn't working out, stabbed him in the back. And clearly that kind of, and the trouble, the, what, how the trouble was in 2016 was that before the corporate, before Jeremy Corbyn really had a chance to do anything, that was kind of tried and it didn't work. Well, that's all, yeah. I think we need to think about, I, I, and I think whoever is leader next time needs to be to basically recognise that they might have to step away if what they're trying isn't working. I think that's important too. It's okay to admit that what you're trying isn't working when you try something different, because the important thing is not any person. The important thing is a Labour government. I hope, I could be wrong, I probably am wrong actually, but this is what I hope, that the fear of having this result repeated is going to become ingrained in the minds of Labour MPs and Labour activists. Um during this uh, impending leadership election. And I think the overriding concern for who the next leader would be is going to be electability, much as it was with Tony Blair. And I don't want I, I, I don't want that to be interpreted as some kind of like dog whistle for it's like, oh, it needs to be some like straight white man, as that always seems to come out as. I don't think that at all. Um, but I really do think that electability is going to become the number one concern. It's like, is this person popular can this person be popular can they win us elections are you here for anyone Eugenie at the moment I'm (laughs) not feeling great about very much but maybe you know maybe I could be convinced over to a kind of a I don't know whoever the tankies get angry about who's on the soft left that will be my inevitable person um (laughs) I just uh um I've been so checked out, so it's just been like quite strange to be like, I I I just started my Christmas holiday, and it's just been a bit like um had this hilarious like l- deciding today the day I'm like going to log back online, and it's like and now I've come for the recriminations, um and nothing else of the internet, but yeah I I could get excited about Angela Rayner, you know, Dawn Butler. Then there are people. I'm just being cynical and just... So whoever we elect as leader, might, I think will probably not win in 2024. So actually what we need to be thinking about, really, is... I've some opinions someone else had, but like, you know... 
We need a good we need a good leader who might credibly win in 2024, in fact has a good chance of winning in 2024, and their shadow cabinet needs to be full of people who can cut their teeth and get really experienced, so that even if they're not ready to run now, in 2024, if we want to change the leader, they can then step up. You know, I think it's, it, if we, if we look at this from a, we want it to be five, but it might be 10, but no more than 10 point of view, then, you know, that might change our decision. I, I think actually what will happen is people will think more short term, but I, I would like to think, you know, it's not just about having the right leader who will then fix everything. It's about making sure that there is a wealth of good voices and talent at the top of the party as well as giving voice to the activists and the membership as well because i think that is important um because then that gives us options and the the other thing is if there's someone who you really really want to be prime minister but you don't quite think they'll win in 2024 you absolutely shouldn't get make them leader now because you, you want a middle ground who and and I have, there is an argument that Keir is maybe that person. Here for Keir, here for Keir, here for Keir. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's exactly what the public's going to want after five years of Boris Johnson. But I may I may turn out to we've got a whole another year to discuss this also. So I'm going to save this one. <laughs> Yeah, God, is horny is horny Tory? I don't know. This is <laughs> such big questions we have to contend with in this. Uh... Well, I mean, both Boris Johnson and G. Jacob Rees-Mogg have six children each, at least. As I as I said on Twitter today, as a as an avowed uh, rootless cosmopolitan, I'll fight Blue Labour to my dying breath. It's like it is very Blue Labour to hate sex unless it's like you know quiet head. <laughs> <laughs> is this, is this the last word of the podcast? It is the last word of the yeah. podcast. Yeah. Fuck Blue Labour. Fuck Blue Labour. Fuck Blue Labour. Fuck Blue Labour. Don't fuck Boris Johnson. <laughs> yeah, cut that. <laughs>